0: The following podcast contains naughty language.
1: Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 4th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll check in with ESPN's Chicago Bulls documentary, The Last Dance, which is really the only sports thing we've got going for us right now. Thankfully, pretty interesting to talk about. We'll also check in on the U.S. women's national soccer team's equal pay lawsuit, which took a turn last week when a major ruling went against the players. Finally, the Hang Up and Listen Quarantine Magazine Club reconvenes for a discussion of the 1998 Sports Illustrated cover story on athletes and out-of-wedlock children, Where's Daddy? The headline, we'll talk about the article and the controversy it kicked up. Hello from Washington, D.C. I already said hello. I'm saying hello again. The view from my desk this week, quite similar to the view from my desk last week. Stefan Fatsis, also in D.C., author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Stefan, I feel like it's tradition in the intro for you to describe one item in the background of your uh, Zoom window here. What is the football next to the Broncos helmet?
2: Oh, that's my NFL football. I bought one NFL football to train for kicking with the Broncos. And uh, that is it.
1: (laughs) My Football by Stefan Fatsas. Did you autograph it to yourself? (laughs) (laughs) I did not. Great job kicking, Stefan, from Stefan. Also with us in Palo Alto, California, but by way of Houston, Texas, Slate Staff Writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, Joel Anderson. What's up, Joel? Hey, what's up? Glad to be back. Glad to have you back. And always need to get that Houston reference in there. Um, should that sh- should we just forget Palo Alto and just go with Houston, or do we need to honor your current location as well? I definitely think
0: of myself as a Houston person living in Palo Alto, but um, I've lived here long enough. Palo, I've lived here five years, which is longer than anywhere I've lived that was not Houston. So I think we should keep he- Palo Alto in the introduction for sure. By
1: way of Shreveport, Louisiana. By way of Houston. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tampa. We'll get the whole CV in there. One of the few people in the
0: world that, that's willing to admit that I like Tampa, Florida out loud too. So we got it all.
1: We'll get into that in a future intro. Yeah. <laughs> A few days ago, documentary filmmaker Ken Burns said the fact that Michael Jordan's production company is involved in The Last Dance makes the whole project suspect. That's not the way you do good journalism, Burns said, and he was probably wagging his finger while he said it. It's certainly not the way you do good history, he added. Burns does know something about bad journalism and bad history, given that he used plagiarist Doris Kearns Goodwin as a talking head in his documentary Baseball albeit before her plagiarism was discovered. We're not here to adjudicate the Doris Kearns Goodwin plagiarism timeline. I am here to say that this Chicago Bulls doc exists only because Michael Jordan wants it to exist, which is something to keep in mind as we're all consuming it. And yet, the two episodes aired on ESPN on Sunday do not put Jordan in the most flattering light. Episode six goes long on Jordan's gambling— Episode five delves into his lack of political activism, most notably his famed quote, Republicans buy sneakers too, and his failure to endorse Harvey Gant in his 1990 Senate race in North Carolina against Jesse Helms. Here is Jordan discussing both the sneaker quote and Gantt.
3: I don't think that statement needs to be corrected because I
1: said it in just, you know, on a bus with, you know, with Horace Grant and Scottie Pippen and it was, you know, thrown off the cuff. My mother asked to do a PSA for Harvey Gantt. And I said, look, mom, I'm not speaking out of pocket about someone I don't know. But I will send a contribution to support it," which is what I did. Joel, what did you think of how this material got treated in The Last Dance? And what did you think of Jordan's responses that we just heard? So I think that his claim
0: that the Republicans by sneakers, too, was set in jest would hold more weight if he'd taken some action other than that in the intervening years, um, he hasn't shown much interest in inserting himself into so-called social justice issues. So, like, I, we can go back to 2015 when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said of Michael Jordan, which is sort of, I mean, it's amazing that one great player would say this about another, that he, quote, took commerce over conscience. That's unfortunate for him, but he's got to live with it, right? And then a few months later, Michael Jordan wrote for The Undefeated that I can no no longer stay silent about the uh, police abuse of black people. And then he gave a million dollars to a police group in the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So he gave money to a police group and a civil rights group as if they were equivalent institutions and equally responsible for the problem of racist police abuse. So it shows that, like, in a way, Michael Jordan still... He's still riding the fence like he all, he he does not want to insert himself in these issues. And so I, I think about what he told his mother in the documentary that I'm not speaking out of pocket about somebody I don't know. Um, you could have gotten to him. know him. Right. Well, and here's the thing. He didn't know Harvey Gantt. But as a 12 year old in Houston, Texas, as we mentioned, I knew that Jesse Helms was a bad person. Like he was one of the most uh, widely known racist to hold a public office in my lifetime. And if there was a Mount Rushmore for racists, Jesse Helms would have been on it to me at twelve years old. So it's not that even that Michael Jordan had to know anything about Harvey Gantt he had he knew enough about Jesse Helms. So all that to say, I'm alternately surprised that he didn't have a better response to this and, and that he aired it. So it gives you the sense that the documentary is willing to air Michael Jordan's warts and his flaws and everything else. Um, but I'm also just sort of stunned that. Why doesn't he have a better answer for that all these years later? Well, I think that the reason for that is that he thinks this is a
2: good answer. That he's had 30 years to think about this. He's had 30 years of his handlers um, denying that he ever said Republicans buy sneakers to in any context, even though it was reported by Sam Smith, the Chicago reporter, in his book The Jordan Rules. So I think that Jordan actually thinks this is a good answer, and his answer is, "Well, I decided to be just a basketball player. That's always been his fallback. I was so busy being the best basketball." player and making myself into the best basketball player that I couldn't be involved in political issues. It's obviously a transparent and flimsy argument, but I think Jordan sincerely believes that it's a good argument and that what he thinks the documentary allows him to do is to air the criticism and air the facts of what happened, and then he can present his response, which he believes to be a credible one that exonerates him from criticism.
1: Well, I've said that this documentary doesn't have much to say about issues beyond basketball. But if it does have something to say, then it's about celebrity. And one of the things that um, has been the biggest themes and was in the episodes that we saw on Sunday is, what does it mean to be Michael Jordan? Um, And you see it with the crush of people around him at all times. You hear it. In Jordan, um, in one of the better, I think, candid moments that was captured in this fabled behind-the-scenes 1998 footage, which is disappointed a little bit, but this was good, showing him in his hotel room, trapped there, saying, "I can't get out," and I want, I'm ready for all of this to be done. And there's a kind of convergence, Joel, with this like focus on Jordan and celebrity and the weight of being him, and this Harvey Gann issue in. A talking head segment from Barack Obama, where Obama comes on and says, he criticizes Jordan and says, I was disappointed that he didn't speak out, but we also need to recognize what it means to be Michael Jordan and the unique responsibilities and burdens that are on him. And deploying Obama in that way, I thought was really interesting.
0: Yeah. And I think that that was a really good use of uh, Barack Obama there, as opposed to in one of the previous episodes. I can't remember when he was just a former Chicago resident, right? (laughs) But I think that there is something important to think about there. And it reminds me of what LeBron went through even a few months ago. And that, It shows the the bind that famous black people are in, that if you speak up about American injustice about black people, then people hold you to the fire on everything else. They expect you to know so much about everything else. I think of LeBron speaking up for Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner, but then falling short on Tamir Rice, which happened right in his backyard when he was in Cleveland. I think of him calling Trump, President Trump, a bum on Twitter, but then inserting himself into the NBA China debacle, and people criticizing him for that. And so, if Michael Jordan shows us anything, is if you don't, uh, if you don't make any expectations for yourself around being an activist, then people won't necessarily hold you to that same standard. Um, but you're going to get it anyway. And so that you know, pe- there, there are people. There's internal community criticism of Michael Jordan that has always been there, but he's sort of been above the fray. And the fact that it was in this documentary shows you that it bothers him because they did not have to address the Harvey Gantt thing. I don't think in the timeline of Michael Jordan's life, that's not one of those things that people would immediately call to mind, but he had it in there because he felt like he needed to address that and say, hey, look, this is why I was absent on these issues.
1: Well, we don't know. I mean, that's what's so interesting about this documentary. Like we can only kind of infer, Stefan, from what we see, how much um, control was exerted by Jordan. And his people. And I'm not sure I agree with you, Joel, because I don't think we would have had a whole episode about gambling if this was the Michael Jordan documentary produced by Michael Jordan and directed by Michael Jordan based on a script by Michael Jordan.
0: It kind of goes back to what we just said earlier, though. Don't you think that, like what Stefan said, that he finds his argument in this case to be persuasive. And I think that's the case with the gambling stuff. I mean, I think this is
2: in here for a very specific reason, and that is for Michael Jordan to say that everything I did was purely because I like to gamble as a hobby. I have never had any sort of gambling problem. My going to Atlantic City with my dad and my friends during the 1993 Eastern Conference Championship Series against the Knicks was no big deal. It was a way for me to get out of the bubble and blow off some steam. And then I think most egregiously, he includes the fact that he had these enormous gambling debts and associations with these shady characters. Um, they have the documentary, admits that he had a $1.2 million gambling debt with some dude who wrote a book called Michael and Me about golf gambling. What and do you mean it, that
1: it admits? Like, it includes?
2: <laughs> it, well, it includes It's him admitting it, basically, and saying, no big deal. I like to gamble. I have plenty of money. And I didn't know that Slim Buller and this white dude that I golfed with were bad guys until much later. That is so... So, like, incredible for him to say it absolves himself of any responsibility for anything that he does. And that, I think, is the thread here. All of these things, and, th- and we can talk about some of the other things in these, these two most recent episodes, they are all designed for Michael Jordan to have the final word about
0: the controversies that have attached themselves to him throughout his career. And don't you think that that's why we spent so much time watching him toss quarters with his bodyguard to show that, oh, this is not a gambling problem. This is not, you know, I, 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 I don't, I don't have a gambling problem. I don't have an addiction problem. I have a competition problem. And right. like that, I I felt like that was the means to an end to show, oh, with Michael Jordan's real issue is that he cannot stop competing against other people. And you see him hustling, you know, Scottie Pippen through the crowd to onto a bus so he can play golf with him and take his money. Like, I feel like it was all built towards this mythology around Michael Jordan's legendary competitiveness.
1: Yeah, I think I disagree with both of you guys. I thought the takeaway from that... Um, Seeing with him tossing quarters with the security guard, and I loved that footage. And I also liked that they went long with it; that it just like went on for kind of longer than you exp- than you would expect. Just him tossing quarters against the wall that showed that he was a degenerate gambler, um, and that he would gamble on anything. And then you had the quote from Will Perdue about how Jordan wanted to play in their dollar a hand blackjack game just because he wanted their money um, in his uh, in his pocket. Uh, you know, the reason that you know about Slim uh, from is c- because the documentary included it. And David Aldred said Jordan claimed he couldn't make it to the White House because of family obligations, but he was actually out gambling with this dude who was a, a criminal. And so I feel like, you know, the worst version of the documentary would not include any of this stuff, right? Right. Would just gloss over it. And you seem to, you guys seem to believe that we're seeing like, the next worst version, which is, yeah. that it includes it, but in a self-exonerating Absolutely, way. 100%. Yeah.
2: You don't think that Jordan's f- like flack of 30 years, and his agents, and his money managers, and the NBA, where he is an owner of a franchise, didn't clear this stuff? And look at it as a way for Michael Jordan to explain the things that people have criticized him for. It's no secret that he had gambling debts, right? That's what you said, Josh. So, this is a way for Jordan to have the word, the final word about all of this stuff, and that is to dismiss it. And the themes that we have hit on here, it's that I'm competitive and that I am first and foremost a basketball player. These are the running things that guide um, the entire documentary. All of Jordan's grievances against other people, which I think we'll get into in a minute, um, are all designed for Jordan to say, hey, that's just who I am. That's just who I was
0: he didn't want to look so bad because if you've noticed when we're more than halfway through this documentary and Juanita Jordan hasn't come up yet, you know what I mean? Like the things that he doesn't want to talk about. I was going to mention that as (laughs) the
1: probably clearest example of Jordan exerting control is that his ex-wife, um, and you know, we're, we're watching last night and my partner was like, why, why aren't we seeing his family? Like that's, an obvious omission. So yes, good good point. I
0: agree. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's clear. I mean, when you can see at the very end, I don't know, I, I would be interested to know how it ended up that he's celebrating his third championship. They hand him the phone and say, hey, do you want to talk to your wife? And he's like, yeah, oh, sure, <laughs> I guess. Right. I mean, it, it, I would have liked to, have, I would like to know why they included that particular clip right there. There's one other piece of airbrushing that I think is important that
2: we talk about. And that is in 1998, He goes to the Garden, and they're playing the Knicks in a regular season game, and he wears the original Jordans. Um, And we get the flashback to how Jordan signed his deal with Nike, and how Adidas, which he loved at UNC, didn't give him the money, and that Reebok was incompetent, and they ended up going to newcomer Nike which offered him like $250,000 up front some sort of you know it was a landmark deal at the time and we see footage and of the first meeting at Nike with his parents and their commercials from the early years the Spike Lee Mars Blackman stuff and what does it leave out entirely the person who negotiated the deal for Nike and got Michael Jordan to Nike and that's Sonny Vaccaro okay, yeah. and Sonny Vaccaro is you know, reviled now by Nike and left the company many, many years ago, obviously, you know, falling out. He's been written out of this history. And that's just like, you know, again, another example of Jordan settling scores here. This is his chance to give credit and to assess blame. And I'm going to leave out Sonny Vicaro because I don't want to give that dude any credit.
1: Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good point. I feel like Jordan is at the center of this documentary and so, obviously, his perspective is going to be aired. I think all of us feel like Jordan doesn't come off that great in his answers and explanations. And the thing that I would <laughs> encourage you to think about is like, how could we be the only people who feel that? Like, you think everyone else in the world is like, well, yeah, that's that makes sense. Yeah, Jordan, Jordan's, uh, you know, his explanations here are great. And do you think like the f- filmmakers? don't understand how jordan comes off it's just like i don't think we could be the only people who see through this
2: I i think the filmmakers probably were thrilled that jordan wanted to include this stuff and to give him the distance to give him the ability to answer these questions on his own i'm sure they were happy that he's was you know that he was being as honest as michael
0: jordan could be i guess Right. And I'm not saying that like we're unique in any way because we have we're coming up with this and discussing it as content. But there are people that probably were more moved by the Kobe footage, for instance, than right. anything else last night. Right. Like that. and there I can envision a world where the conversation is about how moving that was to certain people rather than discussing Harvey Gant. There I mean, we're living in a world where Donald Trump is president. There are a lot of people that probably don't see a problem with Michael Jordan you know, n- failing to insert himself in that Senate race in the first place. Right. So um th- it, it could be all over the place. People could just look at that final product and say, well, hey, look, you're getting to see Michael Jordan behind the scenes, playing around with bodyguards, having fun with Scottie Pippen, you know, Talking shit at the at the dream team scrimmages, like that sort of stuff could just as easily be this the center of focus right. here as anything else.
2: Right. But I don't want to have, have that be the center of focus. So Josh, let's talk about some of the players that Michael Jordan trashes once again in in these episodes. I mean, it was really a range of of players from Clyde Drexler to Isaiah Thomas to Tony Kukosh to Dan friggin' Marley. I mean, Jordan would use any excuse to manufacture grievance and go after dudes. And that is another running theme of the series.
1: Well, so you're you're 50-50 right there. He does trash Isaiah Thomas and Clyde Drexler. Number one, A, always and forever is Isaiah Thomas. The Clyde thing was was more like, it was partly based on Clyde saying that he was good, but it was also about other people saying that Clyde was good and he just wanted to prove that he was the best. But the other two that you mentioned, Dan Marley and Tony Kukoc, had nothing to do with him. It was about Jerry Krause. It was about Jerry (laughs) Krause liking Dan Marley and Jerry Krause liking... Tony Kukoc. So the only two people that Michael Jordan hates are Isaiah Thomas and Jerry Krause. That's the that's the key to understanding Michael Jordan.
0: (laughs) It's also interesting that he didn't say anything really about Charles Barkley. Like they were friends. They were really close friends. And I was looking at a clip of them together side by side on Oprah Winfrey from, you know, I guess the 90s or early 2000s or whatever. And he never said anything about him at all. Like, did he make a comment about Charles Barkley during that portion of the documentary? Not that it was included in the final yeah. cut. Yeah, that was. I just find that really interesting too.
2: He was also kind of beefed at Horace Grant for being the alleged deep throat source for Sam Smith's The Jordan Rules book,
1: which Horace Grant denied. And with the on-court stuff, I think I'd like to end my comments on <laughs> this week's Last Dance <laughs> segment here. The Dream Team practice footage is always great. Um, it's really fun to to see that, and then. It's hard to imagine the Bulls not winning any of these championships. Um, there are only a few ways in, in which it could have gone sideways for them, which is really the most remarkable thing about their run of six titles. But, you know, the shot that John Paxson made in Game 6 against the Suns in the 93 Finals, You, I, I think you hear from an announcer as that shot goes in that it was the only shot that any Bull made, any only points that any Bulls player made in the fourth quarter, of that game. And it, it wasn't like it was a tie game. The Bulls were losing by two. It took them from losing that game to winning game six. And that could have you know been the only game seven in an NBA finals that they would have had to face if, if that shot doesn't go in. So that's just a like in an on-court sense, I think that's the most interesting moment that we saw in this sequence of episodes.
0: And kudos to Paxson for having the guts to take that shot. He was so wide open. No kudos to him. Which Horace Grant would not take, by the way. Horace Grant, who clearly didn't want any of that
1: moment. That was a really <laughs> good pass by, by Horace Grant. No, no Horace Grant slander here. Right. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. I wanted to let you know that in this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the latest plan to bring back the NBA How realistic is it to put players and personnel in a bubble in Las Vegas or Orlando? We will discuss. You can hear that discussion if you're a Slate Plus member. Plus members get that bonus segment this week. But as you know, if you've been listening to us recently, we've adjusted the show temporarily due to the frankly quite heinous financial challenges we're all facing during this pandemic. Temporarily, we have moved to a schedule where every other week, you will need to be a Slate Plus member to hear Hang Up in its entirety. So this week's bonus segment and next week's show in fall, if you want to hear them, become a member at slate.com slash Plus. It's just $35 for the first year, and you'll be supporting us when we really need that support. Thanks so much. We really appreciate it.
2: After the U.S. women's national soccer team wrapped up another World Cup title with a win over the Netherlands in Lyon, France last summer, fans erupted in a now famous chant. There were two targets there. One was FIFA boss Gianni Infantino, who no doubt heard the fans as he took the podium to hand out trophies and medals to women who would receive a fraction of their men's World Cup counterparts. The other was the U.S. Soccer Federation, which was the defendant in an equal pay lawsuit filed by members of the four-time World Cup winning women's team. That case took a bad turn for the women last week when a federal judge dismissed the players' claims that they were drastically and deliberately underpaid by U.S. soccer compared to the men's national team. The ruling tossed out the most serious claims by the women who were demanding $67 million in back pay and damages as part of the lawsuit. Josh, like all rulings, the judges' conclusions are more complicated than they might look at first glance, and the ruling features some gaps in logic and perhaps the interpretation of facts, but its effect is clear right now. The women have to appeal the ruling or head to the bargaining table playing a much weaker hand.
1: For U.S. soccer in the long term, winning this case might actually be worse than losing the case. Just the fact that this was a lawsuit in the first place meant inevitably that the outcome was going to be really bad for U.S. soccer. Um, as, As part of the filings, um, arguments were made around women being worse athletes and deserving uh, less pay because of that, which is a, appropriately so. A, a public relations disaster led to the head of U.S. soccer, Carlos Cordero, resigning. Um, so the fact that this was not settled and wasn't settled a long time ago... Just means that no matter what happens, what happened in this ruling last week, what's going to happen this week, what happens next month, there's just like no there's no possible good outcome from a public relations sense. And and Stefan, you know, a lot of the times when you say from a public relations sense. You're not talking about substance. You're just saying style, and you're you're making some claim that style is more important than substance. But actually, when I say it, I think that the public relations aspect here is extremely important because this is about how women are perceived in our society, how women at the top of their craft are treated. And I I think this ruling is pretty narrow um, in looking at these collective bargaining agreements and the argument the judge makes, which I think is defensible, is that these contracts were negotiated by players' unions, and that the contracts are separate and the unions are separate, and that if the players have any beef here, it should be with their representatives. I'm not saying I agree with that argument. I'm saying it's not totally unreasonable on its face. But the bigger picture here is that, you know, U.S. soccer is a nonprofit. They um, shouldn't be in the position of making the argument that women deserve less money in the first place. Um, It's, you know, I don't know how this is going to get resolved, but I just don't think that this legal victory is a win for U.S. soccer.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're making this argument in a world where a a lot of fans are men and have Sexist beliefs about like what women deserve and how much money they should be making. So, even, even it's like a public relations argument. And I know that we think that like, oh, US soccer might look bad here, but I'm not actually sure that they, they may look bad to fans of the US women's soccer team. But on the whole, I'm not so certain that taking this hard line approach is necessarily bad for them. And in a lot of ways, it was substantiated for them by going to court. Because I think about this, you know, they they went to court, this judge makes a ruling, and people are surprised. And I'm like, well, welcome to America. And the idea that the justice system <laughs> is the best and only place to resolve issues of inequality and equity. You know, we should know by now that American jurisprudence is like not some necessarily ideal deliberative body. So, I can't speak specifically about Judge Klausner, but I mean Sally Jenkins made some you know great points in her column from the weekend where she says, "Hey, look, this guy Klausner has already been cited before for making you know uh, not specious arguments, but arguments that you know were I think you know later dismissed or whatever overturned by an right dismissed by an appeals court, yeah, right." So I mean, you know, we still have to operate in a world where a lot of people don't believe that women should be making the same amount of money as men, right? And so I'm not. I mean, although there has been a change in leadership in US soccer, it's not a given that by taking this hardline approach against the women's soccer team that anything bad will happen. You know what I mean? Right. I think what we what we do know about the judge is that he's a 78-year-old white guy. <laughs> you know, his
2: his views of equal pay and equality might be a little retrograde. It's hard to tell. But what we do know is that in this ruling, he takes a very narrow argument that I think on appeal, the women's attorneys will say, does not hew to the facts. And the basis for his ruling is that that in collective bargaining, the women demanded something, which was guaranteed pay of like $72,000 a year if you were on the women's national soccer team, that the men didn't have. But the reality of the negotiations are such that The women approached U.S. soccer at the initial part of bargaining and said, we want some guarantee, and we want a similar bonus structure to the men. U.S. soccer refused to give them both of those things, and the women chose to get the guarantee. And the reason that you might want the guarantee if you're a women's soccer player is that salaries are so small in women's soccer. So, the $72,000 is meaningful to a player who makes the national team, who also can be cut from the national team at any point. So, there's a lot of apples and oranging going on here in, in these legal arguments that I think on further review, a different judge or set of judges may choose to look at differently. And one of the arguments that the women made is that, or one of the arguments that the judge relied on was that actually between the years cited in the lawsuit, the women per game made more than the U.S. men's national team did. Well, that's because the U.S. men didn't qualify for jack shit. They didn't make the World Cup. Their opportunities to make more money were limited. The women had to win every last fucking game they could play in order to reach level of compensation that was slightly better than the shitty men's team.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the most convincing case that you can make that Caitlin Murray and others made over the weekend is that the women couldn't have earned anything more than they earned during this period, winning two World Cups. The men, by missing the 2018 World Cup, maybe not literally, but essentially made the bare minimum that they could have possibly made, and so actually, if the if the men beat Trinidad and Tobago in that final game, if Christian Pulisic is not, you know, crying on on the ground, then this lawsuit looks a lot different. The facts on the ground are a lot. I mean, I think we can blame Trinidad for this, honestly.
2: The men's failure bailed the U.S. Soccer Federation out here um, in terms of, you know, they would have made a lot more money if they had advanced to the second round of the World Cup as they had done in
1: 2014 and 2010. But the, the apples and oranges thing, there's like an orchard full of apples and oranges here such that I don't think you can make a clear ruling in this case. I think that... You bring in, as you were alluding to, Stefan, your yeah. views as a person who's living in this world. And you can interpret all of these facts, and it's not even twisting them, I don't think. You can look at this set of facts and make a totally different conclusion. And so I think it's just unfortunate that, um, and this is kind of what you were saying before, Joel, that like a yeah. court of law is where this had to be settled. You would have liked to think that U.S. soccer and the women's national team could have recognized that this was not gonna go well. I think the women's team did not expect it to go this way. I think they thought that by bringing it to court, they would be able to put pressure on U.S. soccer, maybe to reach a settlement, or and if not, then they would win. Um, and that's not what happened. But you would have just liked to think that they could have all recognized the mutual interest in coming to an out-of-court settlement here. And the fact that that didn't happen is disappointing.
0: W- is it the belief then that, you know, the new U.S. soccer president, sydney Parlo Cohn, that there was going to be a change in approach going forward, right? That U.S. soccer was going to have a better, more agreeable approach to the women's claims. So... We're basically at a point right now where they still can reach an agreement if they want to. like it's within sure. it's within their purview to do that. they don't have to they don't have to make the women appeal this ruling. No, they don't. And my prediction is that they
2: won't, is that they will reach some sort of settlement here. I mean, the women are in a weaker negotiating position, which serves U.S. soccer's interests. But at the same time, the, we, the women remain in a very, very powerful public relations um, position, which is to the detriment of U.S. soccer. U.S. soccer needs to repair its own image right now, following those legal briefs that they filed, saying that women are in fear to men. Um, So it is absolutely in their interest to have a real negotiation that reaches some sort of mutually acceptable terms for how these women are going to get paid for the next quadrennium
1: and beyond. So more than at any point previous, you feel like there's mutual interest and that there's going to be an alignment here? Because I feel like in the past, we've we would have said that we didn't think that it would have gotten this far, even. That it seemed, at least, that there should have been mutual interest before. But maybe we were wrong, and it took this ruling, which, you know, we should be clear, U.S. soccer, its response was not celebratory. No. It was very brief, curt, and not wanting to, you know, do any kind of whatever the soccer equivalent of an in-zone dance is. Like, there's recognition by current leaders. It's leader- called a goal <laughs> celebration. Okay, <laughs> um, they didn't want to, like, rip rip a, a shirt off in Brandy Chastain style. Th- there's recognition by current leadership that there's nothing to be celebrated here. Um, and so, I think that is a a, a good... Right. New
0: and recently installed leadership as well, right? So, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, if we had, if we had this conversation, Four or five months ago, maybe it would be different, right? But I mean, this is a a fairly new U.S. Soccer uh, Federation, so yeah. I mean, they they didn't seem very happy, at least judging from the statement. But who's to say? I mean, the issue it's not what they say in their statement; it's how they approach and handle the women's claims going forward from here on out. And we'll know we'll know a lot about that because they're not. I mean, they're not going to be able to hold court probably in California for a while, right? I mean, that's or or to have an an appeal. There's not going to be a lot of that. Going on. So they've got time if they want to resolve this.
2: Yeah. And and I think it's important. You mentioned who the 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 new head of U.S. soccer is. It's Cindy Parlow Cone, who was a member of some of those great U.S. women's teams in the 90s. And her personal reputation is now really on the line. And I think that they're going to be very sensitive to that. I mean, Cohn was on, was like a vice president of the federation and got elevated to the president's job. Um, and there was criticism of her as having, because of her position as a vice president, sort of effectively condoning and being responsible for at least being responsible for knowing what their lawyers were saying. So it, You know, it it is going to fall on her to recast the way this Federation approaches the most valuable, famous, and helpful (laughs) players in American soccer right now.
1: Stefan and Joel, I'm I'm curious what you guys think of this because I think there are good arguments to be made on both sides. I'm wondering if we feel like equal pay is the wrong construct here, because as we've discussed. The contracts aren't the same, and they shouldn't be the same, Like um, because of the difference at the club level. It makes sense that the women would want and need the kinds of guarantees that men don't. Um, And yet, the players have been very adamant in framing this as an equal pay issue um, before this ruling and after, that this is about being treated differently because they're women, about systemic differences in that we can see across all sorts of different industries. But when you frame it as equal pay rather than we should get what we deserve and we deserve more, then you open yourself up to arguments like the judge makes in this ruling that, you know, that it's just hard to look at this as in terms of equality when the baseline structures are so different. It just doesn't really map on that that neatly. So, Stefan, do you feel like it, it's a mistake to talk about it or frame it as equal pay, even though that's such a powerful argument in our culture and an important argument in our culture.
2: Absolutely. It's a very powerful phrase in our culture. And you're right, though. It, it feels like after everything that's happened, the right approach publicly might be to get on, get get away from the notion that we should be comparing ourselves to men and particularly the U.S. men who don't deserve any comparison other than you know, the bottom line of what their collective bargaining agreement says. I mean, these women are above and beyond the U.S. men in soccer right now. And I think it demeans them to suggest that this is a uh, an issue that needs to be framed as us versus them. And it definitely bit them in this ruling, because the judge ultimately focuses very very directly on what the men had and what the women had and that's not the case that they should be presenting in a you know in a court of arbitration or in a contractual negotiation I think
0: yeah i mean i think equal pay is just a pithy shorthand um for broader arguments about discrimination in, um, employment and, you know, compensation. Right. And so, I mean, I guess like that's something that makes it digestible for people that are sports fans who are not necessarily looking at legal briefs. The judge is supposed to go beyond that. Like the, the lawyers are supposed to go beyond, right? you know, the shorthand of equal pay. But I mean, it's important to notice, to note that equal pay is something that we talk about in every industry and we barely... You know, it's not something that's like basically been realized in almost any industry in America or in the world that women are tend to be and people of color and women of color tend to be paid something less than equal women and people of color and women of color quite often fail to get whatever would be equivalent to males. Tend to be white male in whatever field there is. So when they say equal pay, we know that we're talking about institutional discrimination of women in this instance. And they're not getting their just due. And the judge is supposed to know better than that. And sports fans are supposed to know better than that. But again, this is a problem that goes far beyond soccer. And I mean, hell, I mean, sports fans, there's not. I mean, if you look at Twitter, if you look at baseline sports fan, it's not a given that a lot of sports fans believe that women should be paid equal to men. I mean, shit. I mean. Barstool Sports? No, just go into the comments on any of these stories. Yeah, Barstool Sports isn't famous because, you know, they're known as feminist over there. There are a lot of people that think that they get what they get, and that's proper. But Josh, though, the, in, in this particular instance,
2: the better comparison for the U.S. women's national soccer team, just in terms of comparison, not in terms of straight compensation isn't the US men it's like the german men and the italian men and the brazilian men and the english men it's all of the best sports teams in the men's side of international football. That's who they should be comparing themselves to because it demeans them. It diminishes their accomplishments to compare them to the U.S. men's national soccer team. And that's not, you know, I'm not arguing that that's how they should be approaching this from a legal or even a contractual negotiation standpoint, but to put their accomplishments into perspective, that's what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I also just think it's not fair to the U.S. men either, although I don't right. think we should necessarily be – they should not be the focus in this conversation. But it's just like, you know, it's not – why do they deserve to be, like, shat upon? Like, they're obviously, you know, that <laughs> they, they didn't make the World Cup in 2018. Uh, they made it in 2014, 2010, 2006, et cetera, et cetera. So, I, I just think the comparison does no good for anyone. For anyone. In any reason. On May 4th, 1998, 22 years ago, today, as we're recording, Sports Illustrated published what it billed as a special report. The cover read, Pro athletes have fathered startling numbers of -of out-of-wedlock children. One NBA star has seven by six women. Paternity cases have disrupted teams. What's happening and what does it mean for the kids left behind? The headline was Where's Daddy? And the cover featured an image of a young black child holding a basketball the son of Boston Celtics guard Greg Miner. The article, written by investigative reporter Lester Munson, opens with NBA player Larry Johnson taking a paternity test. The piece says that Johnson pressured the mother of his child to have an abortion, which she did not. He was eventually ordered by a judge to pay $8,850 per month in child support and $30,000 a year for a nanny. Munson writes that this was only the latest of Johnson's expensive sexual misadventures, noting that he was supporting five children by four women with his 12-year $84 million contract. The player alluded to on the cover with seven kids by six women was Sean Kemp. Munson also lists what he calls an NBA all-paternity team of players who have had children out of wedlock and have subsequently been the subject of paternity-related lawsuits. Larry Bird, Patrick Ewing... Jawan Howard, Jason Kidd, Stefan Marbury, Kim Olajuwon, Gary Payton, Scottie Pippen, and Isaiah Thomas. The story is fascinating to read now because of both the content and the moralizing tone that it's written in. We should also note that this was a huge deal back then when an SI cover story had the ability to dominate the news cycle. The SI piece inspired a two-episode arc on The Oprah Winfrey Show, which a bunch of NBA players were pissed about. In his column in the Philadelphia Inquirer, Stephen A. Smith, yes, that Stephen A. Smith, quoted Shaquille O'Neal as saying, somebody's always trying to bring down Black athletes, especially the ones getting paid. Joel, there is a lot to get into here. Where do you want to start with this story? Oh, man, Uh, there's so much. I mean,
0: the one thing that I thought about as I read this over again is that I feel like the idea came from a news meeting where they heard about Sean Kemp's plight, and they thought, That's not enough to sustain a story or like we can't just pin this all on Sean Kemp. Is this part of a broader trend? And then they had to stretch it out because I think about the, you know, the line that they use. that said that NBA players have fathered a
1: startling number of out of wedlock children, but they give you no numbers. Like there's no, there's no data here, right? There's an anonymous quote from an agent who says, I'd say there might be more kids out of wedlock than there are players in the NBA.
0: Right. And Lynn Elmore says something that, oh, probably every player has something on one to two because there's some that have none. So you have to balance for the fact that some have four or five or seven like Sean Kemp. And so it just seems really sloppy, although they did all the things that you would want a reporter to do because they've got a sociologist, they've got... Um, you know, women's voices in here, A, a female attorney, family law, practice attorneys in here and everything but it still just seems really sloppy but i think that is a reflection more of the era than the journalism in and of itself i think that like the thing the claims that they made here were claims that i heard and even sort of believed back in the 90s but now we have a lot more data we have a lot more information people that are smarter have taken on a lot of these uh, these ideas about pathology about black athletes and have sort of push back against it. But back then, there was not necessarily the vocabulary or the 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 expertise base to sort of push back against this sort of reporting then.
2: I definitely want to get into that idea of how what's changed in the 22 years since this story was written. I mean, journalistically, you're absolutely right, Joel. This was conceived in a meeting where, you know, let's put our investigative reporter on this, and let's do a thorough assessment of the state of out-of-wedlock children in the NBA. And you know it's journalistically sort of scrupulous because of the number of to-be-sure graphs in this story. There is so much hedging going on at every turn. And I I will read some of those to-be-sure sentences. Although there have been no studies on athletes and their out-of-wedlock kids, dot, dot, dot. Paternity suits are by no means the exclusive preserve of the NBA, nor are they unique to this generation. It could be argued that the spate of of out-of-wedlock birth among athletes simply reflects a societal epidemic. Professional athletes have a lot of sexual opportunities and probably always have. High-profile white athletes have certainly had their share of paternity cases. So there is a th- the through line of this story is this hedging because there really is no strong argument to be made other than anecdotal.
1: Yeah, there, there's a lot of box-checking here because. This is such a fraught topic. It gets into matters of of race, obviously, and it's clear that they were very aware of that. Yeah, and that there are these kind of caveats and and to be sure's and, but it's it's not just about race. There's also this question, and it's raised. And batted down and raised and batted down repeatedly in the article about the the gold digger phenomenon, for lack of a better term. That there are women out there Yeah, they
2: don't it doesn't use the word gold digger, but that's Right. right. That
1: there are women out there who see getting impregnated by an athlete as an opportunity to make money. There are voices in the article saying that's true. There are voices in the article saying it's ridiculous. And it reminds me of Dan Ingber's article about the rape allegations against the Mets that we um, discussed on the show earlier this year. And there were all these articles in the 80s written about groupie culture. And as Dan noted in his piece, a lot of the perspective in those pieces was from that of athletes talking about how groupies were trying to scam them. Um, And this is coming along a decade later. And you can see kind of how the culture had moved in that decade. We, you know, it's not where we are now. But after a decade, um, you couldn't write a story then that just said women are gold diggers. You should say like maybe women are gold diggers, but also maybe they're not. Um, and so this article is just like very. It feels very unsure of itself, while also kind of keying in to what was then something that was widely discussed and seen as this cultural phenomenon. Like I remember, like you were saying, Joel, like Sean Kemp and all of Sean Kemp's kids was like a huge discussion point in high school or whatever. It's like, it was a thing that a lot of people were talking about. And so I don't um, think it was a mistake for Sports Illustrated to wade in here and recognize that there was a story. Right,
0: and I think that Sean Kemp does have like a fascinating story because it wasn't necessarily the paternity issues that caused the decline of his career. He had to go to rehab for substance abuse, you know, years later, as it turned out. So we can't necessarily pin all this on on paternity issues, but I, I think of this huge chunk in the story where they ask all these questions. Does the distraction of unplanned fatherhood and paternity suits affect an athlete's performance? How does a child deal with having a father whom he hardly knows and rarely sees except on television? And they don't really answer those questions. Right. Like, I mean, it's like you're going to ask all these questions to give the give this story some heft and some import, but you don't have enough information because it's not out there uh, to answer those questions. And so it just sort of undercuts the value of the story to me in the in the first place. Like if you don't you know that you don't have enough information, you know, you don't have enough data to sustain these broad claims that you're making about these, you know, really salacious court cases. And so then this sort of undermines it. But I, you know, like, like you said, Stefan, they do a lot of dancing to make this story fit. You know, they, they say, well, to be sure. Because
2: there was really no other way to do this story in the absence of really strong empirical evidence. I mean, this was an anecdotal story that also has lots of you know, legal documentation behind it, and people to talk to—both the players, their lawyers, their agents, um, the, the the mothers, and the children—in some cases. I mean, Larry Bird's out of wedlock daughter is quoted in in the story, and there's scenes with her in in this piece. But it does try to sort of. It's a very omnibus magazine story, right? You know we're going to quote experts on throwing out the idea that you know sexual conquests are about proving your masculinity, um, and there's going to be a couple of graphs of about race, and even the race stuff feels like, oh yeah, we should probably say that you ninety five percent of the players we've mentioned in this story are black, and here's why um, and so there is this a lot of dancing to get at this larger issue. I'm wondering whether this story, josh would be written today or written any differently today? Or, getting back to Joel's original question, has the culture changed in some way in pro sports?
1: Yeah, I think it would be written much differently today. And it's an interesting like, thought experiment to think about, about how that would happen. Because it does feel like, you know, as, we, as we've said, there's a lot of kind of perfunctory box-checking, here. Um, and and I think you would have to really grapple with these issues in a way that felt less perfunctory. Because the statistics that are cited in the piece are, you know, 32% of U.S. children are born to unmarried mothers in 1995, compared with 18% in 1980. And then also um, that 70% of Black children nationwide are born to unmarried mothers, compared with 21% for whites and 41% for Hispanics. What they don't have is statistics on what is the rate of out of wedlock births and professions where um, people are making a huge amount of money and traveling all around the world and are incredibly famous. Um, you know how do you how does it compare to like rock music or or something like that or Hollywood or whatever. Yeah, and so I think when you have the statistics that you do have, kind of anchor the story in a particular way. And the statistics that aren't there, the ones around what the actual numbers are in the NBA, what the numbers are around people in the particular income quintile, that that means that that those issues really aren't discussed or talked about at any length. And so I, I think if the story was written today, I think that's one thing that would need to be addressed.
0: That that 70% of black children born to unmarried mothers stat has been around pretty much since I can remember reading, you know, articles, you know, as I, you know, since, since I first started reading mar- magazine articles, well, that was always a data point used to emphasize the pathology of black people. But like what we do know now is that That you were born to an unmarried mother does not mean you don't have a father. It just means that your parents weren't, that your parents were not married at the time. But it was always, it's always sort of invade as like, there's this deep problem within the black community because they're, you know, they'll have the majority of their children are born to unmarried, you know, parents. Without thinking about all the societal issues that go into who can get married, how they get married, who has the money to get married, and the benefits of marriage that are conferred upon people that may or may not be born, you know, under certain circumstances. So, you can see that they, like, put a lot of heft on that data point as well to say, hey, well, this is why we're talking about it, right? You know, because... A lot of these guys are black and this is a bigger problem within the black community. But like even if they did not have that context or nobody had necessarily made a broader push for why that number doesn't tell you as much as it, they seem to imply that it does. Right. and And it's only at the end of the
2: story, Joel, that we hear that, oh, actually some of these athletes who have had kids out of wedlock are, in fact, very good and attentive fathers. And they visit their kids a lot and the mothers have no complaints and they are in their kids' lives. And That felt a little bit to be surey also. And a
1: lot of the players that are written about in the piece are huge jerks, if not worse. Dave Meggett, <laughs> who's in prison now. Yeah, I mean, people who have done really bad things to the mothers of their, their children, um, who've treated the children terribly. And I think, Let's transition to the conversation that came out after the article. And the Stephen A. Smith's column is really fascinating because um, it's about how NBA players, among them Derek Fisher, responded to this Oprah Winfrey series. And it reminded me of the conversation after the Ray, Ray Rice video where it kicked off this whole big conversation about NFL players and criminality, NFL players and domestic abuse. And a lot of NFL players then uh, about that, and then NBA players around this, didn't appreciate being everybody being lumped in and saying, "You're all criminals. You're all irresponsible." And I think there's there's something to that. And I think it's really hard to do a quote unquote, trend story without sweeping everyone up into the trend. And you know, Joel, you said there's a version of this story that you could do that focuses on an individual player, but then that also runs into the problem of, okay, who do you select to kind of exemplify, like what you're, you're obviously making some sort of editorial judgment in that selection, and so it's a, it's just hard. Like these subjects are are hard, and so what do you, what is the responsible thing to do here?
0: Yeah, I mean, I just. I mean, all stories don't have to be written. You know, I mean, that's one thing, right? (laughs) You know, I mean, there's a lot of sports stories and that doesn't necessarily have to be the one that's written. uh, Because I'm thinking back to to the earlier part of our conversation, Josh, you're an editor. Would you, if somebody came to you with this story idea, would you say, hey, all right, let's figure out a way to focus this. What would you say?
1: Well, so I wrote a whole book about a case that shows that welfare fraud actually exists, but also tries to show that the stereotype of the welfare queen is, like, wrong and racist. And so it took a really long time to do that story and do it well and appropriately and convey all of the nuance that I felt like the subject warranted. And so, as an editor, my view is that if the subject is really challenging and thorny, My first impulse isn't to run away from it. My first impulse is to say, this is interesting. How can we do this in a way that conveys that thorniness with appropriate nuance? And sometimes you don't have the time or resources or staffing to do that. And you can't do you can't give every story that's thorny the amount of resources that it needs. And so yeah, in those cases, I think pass and let somebody else take it on. But I wouldn't pass on a story just because it was potentially fraught and could go horribly wrong. Like, I I think those are stories that as editors, we need to be thinking about how to do right.
0: Well, I think about that story, remember, man, maybe this is a, another one for later, but the SB Nation story from a few years ago, uh, that like imploded their long form uh, department about the former Western Michigan guy that ended up being a cop who ended up you know they he ended up being convicted for being a serial rapist or whatever do you remember the the story yes. yeah, yeah right mm-hmm. and so like I think of that story for instance i 'm like oh there 's a way that story could have been written that didn 't ruin everybody's you know that didn 't ruin careers and and devastate a department um so i 'm not saying that that this story is that, but I do envision a world in which like maybe it could be written, but I think of it in terms of the story of Sean Kemp in and of itself is fascinating. He was one of the most famous basketball players in the world. He had a decline. People didn't know what was going on. That is a story enough to me. It didn't have to be a trend story, but I don't know if that's how Lester Munson came at it either.
2: Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that would be different today and in different hands is that the overall moralizing tone that you flagged at the very beginning, Josh, wouldn't be... Uh, such a, a central part of this piece and it's something that comes up over and over in this story whether len elmore complaining about kids these days and the modern athlete only cares about himself all the way to the very end of the of the piece which takes you into like an nfl rookie orientation session um quoting jim druckenmiller backup quarterback talking about how you know they wanted to let everyone know that girls out there will take a chance to get pregnant, you know, they'll do anything sometimes to get some money out of you. I mean, the the point that gets hammered home is that 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 athletes have to avoid everything and that it's their responsibility to avoid any entanglement whatsoever. And also, this message that, and it's the last line in the story, quoting a uh, a public service announcement from the Detroit Lions, whether you're married, divorced, or single, fatherhood is forever. I mean, you know, it's hard to argue with that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, pretty, it's a pretty anodyne statement. But in the context of this story, you're left thinking that this is one giant scold on black players, particularly in the NBA.
1: The story was called Where's Daddy? May 4th, 1998, issue of Sports Illustrated. We will, again, put a link to that on our show page. And people seem to like this segment. So it seems like it's coming uh, around to being like a once a month thing. So uh, I'd I'd like to keep it up. If you guys want to keep it up. Let's do it. I like reading
2: old magazine stories.
1: Yeah. (laughs) All right. We became brothers that day when he did that to us.
0: We
4: made a change.
0: Fighting for what we deserve.
4: Search for amazing sports
1: stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. And we learned while we were taping that Don Shula, the legendary Miami Dolphins coach, died uh, at the age... Of 90, not of the coronavirus, but he uh, best known for being the all-time leader in wins among NFL coaches, 347, including the playoffs, led the Dolphins to that perfect season in 1972. Did not know till consulting the trusty Wikipedia page that he went to John Carroll as a a collegiate and the football program, John Carroll. Excellent nickname. The John Carroll Blue Streaks. Never heard that one before. Have you ever heard of a blue streak as a a team name? Just Blue Hens for Delaware, but not uh, the Blue Streaks. That's pretty good. Where's John Carroll University? John Carroll is in uh, Ohio. It's uh, University Heights, Ohio, and they play in Don Shula Stadium. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it is Blue Hens, home of uh, elite quarterback Joe Flacco, Blue Streaks, an elite nickname. Uh, (laughs) Stefan, what is your Blue Streak?
2: For those of you uh, who may have missed it last week, in my afterball, I talked about the documentary, The Battered Bastards of Baseball, about a countercultural mid-1970s independent minor league team, the Portland Mavericks. The Mavericks played in a very ugly concrete bowl called Civic Stadium. And when they played, I noticed the stadium didn't paint over the soccer lines on the field, which raised a question who were the soccer lines for? Civic Stadium was home to the Portland Timbers of the North American Soccer League, and I discovered the stadium also hosted a very important game in the history of soccer, Brazilian legend Pelé's last competitive match. It was the 1977 NASL championship game, Soccer Bowl 77, between Pelé's Cosmos and the Seattle Sounders. The Cosmos had other aging stars, including Giorgio Quinalia, Franz Beckenbauer, and Carlos Alberto. The Sounders consisted mostly of old or second-tier English, Scottish, and Welsh players. Harry Redknapp, who would go on to manage Tottenham and... And other clubs in the Premier League was a player coach, though he didn't play in the game that day. Soccer Bowl 77 is on YouTube, and I watched a bunch of it, and I've got to say, it is fantastic. Fans are crammed to the edge of the concrete, hard AstroTurf pitch. Short shorts, Pleistocene era animation and graphics, horn section heavy music. Let's take a listen.
3: This is Portland, Oregon, the City of the Roses, and site of Soccer Bowl 77. For this afternoon, a capacity crowd of 35,000 is on hand to see a game that the experts are calling the most dramatic, emotion-filled championship in North
2: American Soccer League history. Can you identify that voice? Anyone? (sighs) Anyone? Apparently not. It's a 25-year-old John Miller, the great baseball play-by-play guy. Pelé comes out of the tunnel alone holding a ball. He does a lap around the center of the field, and Miller is totally into it.
3: They're playing for the championship of North America today, but for Pelé, number 10, as he greets the crowd moments ago, this is the only championship he has never won, and it is his last chance. The last time that the Black Pearl, the most fabled athlete in the history of sports, perhaps the most loved athlete in the history of sports throughout the world, the last chance for Pelé today as he plays for the money one more time, the last time. John Miller, Paul Gardner, we're ready to go.
2: For the record, one of Pele's nicknames was indeed the Black Pearl. It's a fast-paced, scrappy game. Seattle hacks Kinalia and Pele and the other Cosmos a lot. The ref swallows his whistle. Miller keeps calling them ball clubs and screaming, look out, and announcing announcing a break in the action when they go to commercial, even though there's no break in the action. The swelling roar at this supposedly neutral site for the Sounders is deafening. The Cosmos score first in the 20th minute on a goal by 21-year-old Englishman Steve Hunt. The Cosmos had recruited Hunt by doubling the salary he was making at Aston Villa in England. He would play two seasons with the Cosmos before a long career back in England. Let's listen to Miller and Englishman Paul Gardner on the goal call.
3: And now you're coming back to midfield and England comes right with it. That's quite a duel. Look out. Here's the run. Hunt with Machen. Hunt. Keep, keep Tommy Christensen. Very quickly off his line, Scherzke, and of course he had to be. Everybody knows by now that, that Hunt has... To Look out, Mika! A shot! Goal! Oh, goal, it It is! A goal! A, a goal for the Krasnos! And Stevie Hunt has
2: done it! If you couldn't tell, here's what happens. Hunt chases a ball from Kinalia down the left wing. It's cut off by the Seattle goalkeeper, Tony Chersky. Chersky gets up, looks around, and then he puts the ball down and starts dribbling to his left. He doesn't see Hunt come from behind. Hunt pokes the ball away and it rolls into the net while Chursky tackles him from behind. After the game, a Seattle defender explained what happened. Tony's experienced, but he's deaf in one ear and can't hear a thing. I shouted like hell at him. He couldn't hear me. Seems like it would be good for your goalkeeper to not be deaf. Hunt's shoe comes off during the goal and he's waving it while Pelé carries him awkwardly in celebration. It really is terrific. Seattle ties the game four minutes later, though we miss that goal because the broadcast has cut to a commercial. And then in the 78th minute, this happens.
3: Throw in for the Cosmos in the left wing corners. They keep the pressure on into Stevie Hunt. Hunt with Machen, he's got to beat him to get the ball in front. Here's the opening for Tinalia. Header, he scores! Goal! Has done it again. The leading score in playoff history with the header. His ninth goal in six playoff game.
2: Cosmos win two to one. Steve Hunt is the Copenhagen Skull player of the game. He gets $1,500 from the U.S. Tobacco Company. After the final whistle, you can see Pelé in the distance immediately take off his iconic number 10 jersey and toss it to a Seattle player. It's blurry, but it looks to me like the recipient is number 3, who is Jimmy McAllister, the only American on the field for the Sounders. And lo and behold, I'm right. McAllister, who was just 20 years old, told reporters afterward that he had asked Pelé at the pregame banquet if he would give him his jersey. Pelé agreed and did. He called McAllister the best American player in soccer and said he'll be one of the reasons America will have a good national team and one day reach the World Cup competition. McAllister went on to a 10-year pro career. He earned just six national team caps, though, and was not directly involved in the United States finally reaching the men's World Cup final in 1990. But, He played in Soccer Bowl 77, and I would hope still has Pele's jersey. If you're listening, Jimmy McAllister, or if someone who knows Jimmy McAllister is listening, let us know what happened to the shirt.
1: Josh, what's your blue streak? So a little while back now, I did the uh, trivia thing where I gave the 10 clues, whatnot. Guess who? Pick 10, whatever you want to call it. And people seemed to enjoy that. Got a lot of emails about it. The answers, in case you've been w- wondering, for all of these weeks. The first one was Shaquille O'Neal. The second one was Spud Webb. So I decided I'm going to bring it back. I've got 10 more clues for you guys this week. I don't know if I want to get myself into a uh, thing where I'm making promises by doing it every week. I'm just going to say I'm going to do it this week. Then we'll see where, where uh, this road leads us. Um, so Joel and Stefan, same rules. You uh, will slack me when you think you know the answer. And you only have one guess. If you guess wrong, you get uh, locked out forever, (laughs) forever. And the clues get easier as they go along. You guys ready? Yeah, let's go. Yep. Let's do it. Clue number one. The first newspaper story I could find about this guy says that he had five three-pointers in a single game for the Maroon Giants. The Maroon Giants. Number two, he attended the University of Michigan. He attended the University of Michigan. That is clue number two. Clue number three for you is that right before he got drafted in the first round, he said, I always wanted to be one of the best. My mom said, I could be if I kept working. I guess she was right. The article featuring that quote also noted that he should get enough dough after getting drafted, to replace his rusted 1981 Datsun. Rusted 1981 Datsun. Love repeating the the phrases. That is clue number three. Clue number four, early in his career, he got into a brief conflict with a clerk at an electronics store when the three different models of VCR he wanted to purchase were all out of stock. Three different models of VCR. That he wanted to purchase all of them out of stock what are the chances i would personally get in a conflict with uh, the clerk at that electronics store joel is uh has his hands on the keyboard but has not entered anything yet clear number five the new york observer once reported that his last name had become a synonym for to diss or to blow off as in he fatsist her big time again The last name of this person had become a synonym for to diss or to blow off, as in he fatsist her big time. Stefan is shaking his head. Number six. This guy's adorable nephew, very adorable, is the star of a popular internet meme. The nephew is the star of a popular internet meme. That's clue number six. Clue number seven. Mark Wahlberg shot him in a movie, not in real life. Number seven, Mark Wahlberg shot him in a movie. We have no guesses from either Joel or (sighs) Stefan. Number eight, in 2006, the pioneering baseball thinker Bill James wrote that watching our man make 40 defensive plays and then watching Adam Everett make 40 defensive plays at the same position is sort of like watching video of Barbara Bush dancing at the White House and then watching Demi Moore dancing in striptease. <laughs> wow. Classic Bill James. Barbara Bush, Demi Moore, striptease, our man, Adam Everett, 40 defensive plays. All right. Still no guesses. Man. Moving on to clue number nine. The New Yorker's Roger Angel wrote about our guy's 2014 retirement. His ease, his daily joy in his work has lightened the sadness of this farewell and the cheering everywhere has been sustained and genuine. Roger Angel on his 2014 retirement. His ease, his daily joy in his work has lightened the sadness of this farewell and the cheering everywhere has been sustained and genuine. We have a correct guess from Stephen Fatsas on clue number nine. Congratulations to Stephen Fatsas. Number ten, our final clue. When our hero emailed his former teammate Alex Rodriguez in 2016, A-Rod failed to immediately respond saying that quote, his (laughs) his inbox was completely full. (laughs) We have a correct guess from Joel Anderson. Uh, I love this. This is my favorite quote. When our hero emailed his former teammate, Alex Rodriguez, two two years after his retirement, this was in 2016, A-Rod failed to immediately respond, saying that his inbox was completely full. A-Rod's got a a full inbox. All right, Joel, Stefan, congrats on the correct answers. I will say this, next week's show, I will reveal the correct answer. And on next week's show page, my my innovation is going to be, I'm going to put all of the clues... With all of the links to all of the sources that I use to compile this information. So, hope you enjoyed that. I'm not, do not email me personally with your answers. But if you do have thoughts on the guess who pick 10 concept, feel free to email us at hangup at slate.com if you would like us to uh, continue. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you are still here, I am guessing you might want even more. Hang up and listen. In our bonus segment this week, we talked about the latest plan to get the NBA back in business.
0: I miss basketball. I would love to be watching playoff basketball right now. I would love to see LeBron go for his fourth ring, but I don't want it that bad. But the point is that somebody out there wants it that bad.
1: Hear that conversation. Join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year, you can sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus for Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty and thanks for listening.
3: Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse with family